Successful news organizations today are putting technology first. Software tools give journalists more leverage. Journalists can share information and publish faster with fewer errors. Data scientists give news stories statistical support. Software engineering is at the core of the most successful media outlets. Mike.com is a media company focused on news for millennials. Anthony Sessa is the VP of product at Mike.com, and he joins us to talk about the engineering of a modern news organization. We discuss data engineering, front-end technologies, and how to migrate away from WordPress. We also explore how to build a successful media company today and how millennials like myself want to consume news. If you're a fan of Software Engineering Daily, we want to know how to improve. Please take five minutes to fill out our listener survey. There's a link to the survey in our newsletter and on our website. We would love to know what you think, what you want to hear more of and less of. Uh, we read all the feedback we get, so please go to softwareengineeringdaily.com and fill out the survey. It would really help us. Anthony Sessa is the VP of product at Mike.com, a media company focused on news for millennials. Anthony, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me. So what is Mike.com? In a quick snapshot, it's a news site for college-educated millennials. So we have 30 million unique visitors. Around 80% of them are college-educated. And we're writing news for them that is conversational, on-topic, and takes a stance in some cases on some pretty pretty big issues, which um, can be along the lines of LGBT, social justice, women's rights, and we're trying to kind of create a conversational tone um, around these topics. To what degree does Mike think of itself as a technology organization? So it's it's a, uh, I think it's an interesting question because we definitely think of ourselves as a tech organization, and it's one of the the fun aspects of the culture here. But even more so than tech, we think of our team as a product organization. And it's kind of a thesis of, of ours. And I, I joined three years ago as an engineer um, when there was nine people and now we're like 130. And essentially my, my reasoning for coming here is, is I really love product, but I was an engineer myself and I always wanted the product engineering team to be one. So even though we're very technically enabled and inclined, there's very product-minded people that are engineers here and that are very much associated with the entire process of building products. So, yeah. So is, is that a similar view to the technical, technologically-fueled New York media companies, the other, the other technologically-fueled New York media companies like BuzzFeed or the, it feels like the New York Times is, is becoming more technologically-informed? How do you think the, the focus on product and technology at Mike compares to that of, of New York Times or BuzzFeed? Yeah, I mean, these are much larger media companies that are really good at what they do, especially those two companies. I mean, um, the New York Times, since their innovation report, has made a drastic change in how they view the digital media space. And BuzzFeed has always been excellent at this. And here we have a, a similar but kind of different challenge. It's a little more um, niche, essentially. We're, we're dealing with a specific demo or a specific kind of group of people. And given how important the consumer-facing products that we have are, we're always taking that into consideration. Um, 
So right now we kind of have a mobile website, a desktop website. We do treat them as separate products. Um, the majority of our traffic's on mobile. So when we think of the challenges that we have, it's, it's always about mobile web, how we can make that product better. How can we iterate on that product? Um, what kind of data do we need behind the scenes to make better decisions? And then beyond that, um, and I think all these organizations, like the, the, the bigger ones, have their own CMSs at this point. And from kind of two years ago, we already started building uh, the majority of our stuff in-house. And the CMS being one of them, the article editor being one of them, I'd love to show you at some point. Can't do it over a podcast, obviously. <laughs> but um, it's very much in line with how our article page looks and it allows our editorial team to, to see the content that they're producing live. And it's very medium-esque in nature. And it's backed by analytics. Every article page has analytics on it. So I think this kind of mental workflow of allowing editorial quality along with data-driven journalism and data-driven kind of design and productization is something we do fairly well and really well in most cases. And a lot of these other companies like New York Times and BuzzFeed are also doing it too. So I totally can appreciate the importance of having a homebrewed CMS. Uh, you know, Software Engineering Daily this podcast runs on WordPress and WordPress is great at what it does. And there are many fantastic media organizations out there that are running on WordPress and have a uh, extremely modularized, uh, custom built, homebrewed WordPress. But you can always feel when you go to a WordPress site, you know it's WordPress. What are the technological problems with WordPress. Where is WordPress splitting at the seams and why could you not build Mike.com on WordPress? Uh, so I, I've, what's interesting about this question is I've had, I can't name names, people at other media companies come and say, how do I convince them not to use WordPress? And um, for, for smaller publications, it makes perfect sense. You have everything you could possibly need and it gets you out of the box. Now, when I kind of answer this question, it's a little bit not just technically inclined, but it's almost like technical organizationally, it becomes problematic. So from day one, from a CMS workflow perspective, you're locked into the design, you're locked into the usability, um, you're locked into a MySQL database, you have to use PHP, you can start with themes, but then you probably want something that's customized, so then you're going to have to go out and find someone who's a specialist in how the whole theme infrastructure works, the, the famous WordPress loop. I don't know if they've changed it or not since I've last played with it. Um, I'm sure it's a lot better than it used okay, to be. Okay, what is the WordPress to... loop? So there's a loop function. This is older, so it might not exist anymore, but there's this loop function in WordPress specifically on the posts page where you list your posts, essentially, and it goes through this basically long procedural function called loop, essentially, that will build the header, build the content, build the, the permalink structure, bring the comments in. So you have to kind of tap into this loop. And I, you know, I'm going off a memory of five, six years ago, but it's, it was kind of this thing, this, this concept. Um, and then you, just to go back though, you have to hire people that do WordPress and I don't want to speak down to them, but in any case, the, the more, the more aggressive software engineers, I would say are going after more of the custom problems that they have to solve. So when you get worked into a PHP infrastructure that is somewhat outside of the norm of general best practices of PHP open, I mean, object-oriented programming, it gets a little bit harder to find people that want to deal with that problem. Unless you're Facebook. 
Unless you're, <laughs> unless you're Facebook, when you want to, you create your own, you know, way of dealing with that problem. So yeah, and it's just a very becomes a very specialized mindset for engineers. Okay, so so let me ask you in in my own self interest because you know eventually, ideally, software engineering daily will move off of WordPress. To what degree is WordPress? like a walled garden. I mean, you, you did mention there are you know, yeah. certain constraints that you have to, you know, you have to be on MySQL or whatever. Uh, how difficult would it be to migrate everything off of WordPress and onto a different platform? <laughs> the, depends what the platform is. Um, if you're going to another uh, blog-based pre-made application, you probably can import it fairly well because it's there's so many import export tools for WordPress. What I would suggest, regardless of what platform you choose, and this is what Drupal has done when when they've migrated to Drupal eight or whatever it was, they they created an underlying MVC framework. So if you want something that other developers are going to understand that can create a long lasting platform. Um, from a software engineering perspective, an architectural perspective, you're going to want to move to the very least to an MVC architecture. So I don't know off the top of my head what pl- blogging platforms utilize that besides Drupal in a certain sense. Um, but there are definitely scaffolded platforms out there for creating blogs. And at the end of the day, what a blog is is a simple crud. You're going to create a row. You're going to update, uh, you know, read the row, update it, and delete it. And that problem is not a very difficult one to solve. And that's what MVC frameworks like Rails or Zend or KPHP or even Express a little bit and Node um, allow you to do very easily. So, so perhaps the lock-in might exist at the level of plugins, yep. if anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're if you're very plugin heavy. It depends. I'm trying to think. Like, if you want to have sophisticated image cropping on the back end and custom modules, yeah, you're gonna to have to build that from scratch. Okay, for sure. So, I want to kind of get back to the discussion of media organizations and how sure. they're changing and how the technology in these organizations is changing. But starting from the top down, there was this book a while ago by Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO. Uh, he, you know, became chairman of Google after uh, stepping down as CEO, and he kind of started writing some books. And one is called The New Digital Age. And one of the things that he predicts in this book is that the importance of bigger, centralized news organizations will go down over time and be replaced by, not fully replaced, but largely replaced by a higher population of these tighter, more verticalized news outlets. Is that coming true? I I would definitely think in some senses, yes. Saying replace is a little bit strong, but they're going to be challenged by them. So obviously, Mike is a very focused news publication or media media company. And then you have all the other ones out there, Quartz, which is very business-centric. Medium, which is still in the same space, but more of a product-first, consumer product-first than anything else, which is super interesting. And then you have the big guys like the New York Times, which I mentioned before. I mean, that innovation report that they released was, I thought, great. It showed and paved the foundation for the older media companies and how they could start thinking about moving into this new world. So the companies that are kind of, uh, what's the word, taking on that challenge, I think are going to stay. They really are. The ones that aren't moving as fast as they need to and really putting tech and product first and data first and making sure the editors are informed on a daily basis about how their articles are being distributed, how well they're doing in a distributed sense, and how they can write high-quality journalism at the same time while worrying about 
how many eyes are going to see their news. That's a really interesting challenge that companies like Mike, Quartz, Vox, BuzzFeed, obviously, are all doing on a daily, daily basis. And um, yeah, I think some of the older companies are going to lose. Um, and some of the new media companies that are trying to do this are going to lose as well. But then you're going to have a nice core group that make it like Mike and BuzzFeed and Vox and so forth. And are these changes to the media landscape, are these driven by the technological advances that enable certain people to be more powerful so that they don't need a lot of the infrastructure of the giant model of the New York Times? Or is it, is it more due to changing preferences? Like, for example, you know, um, I feel like millennials don't care as much about fact checking. You know, they're kind of mm-hmm. okay with a shoot first, ask questions later form of media. Uh, you know, the the append only eventual consistency form of media. <laughs> so I don't know what is what is the what is driving this uh, this series of changes. So I'm I'm going to speak about Mike. I think specifically because that's the most knowledge that I have from an editorial perspective, but. Again, I've been here a very a pretty long time, and every decision that we've made about editorial integrity and fact checking and everything along those lines has been in a way that puts us in a position to be higher quality, lower articles per day, more than being a content farm. So we're not a content farm. There's definitely companies that are content farms. Um, we have no desire to ever go in that direction, and we've made very amazing hires. I think. From Adelika Sika, who was the executive editor of NPR. Now she's the executive editor here. Um, we just hired Corey Hike from Washington Post, who was the director of editorial, emerging editorial products. And we're focusing on how to write the best content we can at the scale that a digital media company has to write it at. So it is a very, very tough challenge. And I, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I think anyone can write. 300 articles per day and forget about all the editorial integrity, that would be a failure for us if we started doing that. And everyone knows that. And that's why we we have the kind of culture that we have where people are obsessed about being journalists. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So it sounds like what you're saying is maybe when these, uh, you know, when, when, te- when media started getting uh, engulfed by tech, you know, I don't know, the last five or 10 years, ago uh and the kind of the knee-jerk um response of how people were hacking face kind of hacking facebook with just like spamming tons and tons and tons of articles um and they kind of were doing that sometimes under the pretense that this is just the way that we have to do it now um and maybe you're suggesting that that is a false trade-off you actually don't need to win that way I I don't, I mean, given we have a large amount of users um, and we're not doing that and we're, we're going about our distribution in a very sophisticated way, it's not, I don't think it's necessary. And I mean, that being said, I kind of didn't address the first part of your question. I wouldn't say that tech drives media companies as much as I would like to do say that as a, as a technical person, (laughs) the content, the content does, that is the bottom line. Um, Great content's going to win. And we are here, the product team is here to allow people to create great content, but also give them the information. So um, 
editors have a lot of access to dashboards and, and reporting that we're giving them. And, and there's people to help them interpret it in a way that's journalistically sound so that they can make decisions about quality first, quantity later. And we're working internally very hard on a metric that combines quality and quantity um, that is, is going to be more meaningful to an editor and a writer in the sense where they're not just looking at how many impressions an article gets or how many shares an article gets, but the, the long-lasting effect that an article has on a reader, whether it's integrating time spent, how much of the article was read, a qualitative survey, which is something if you get lucky, uh, you might see it on our site right now. And those are types of things that we're starting to gather and we're starting to work with data scientists on understanding how that could actually culminate to an, a metric that is not so dense, but um, understandable and, and people feel good about when their article gets this number in this metric. And I, I'm not going to go into the details of what that might look like, but it is something that I think other media companies are definitely working on in their own way. And, um, that's where you kind of see tech affecting how editors and writers and the journalistic area work. And that, that's a good example. Okay. So I want to get a better feel for how the different teams within Mike interoperate and how you, mm-hmm. how you produce such high quality products. So you've got designers, developers, engineers, DevOps, I imagine, um, you know, obviously the journalists, um, <laughs> how do these different teams align or are, are there teams? Do you just have loosey goosey people running around? How does it work? No, we don't have loosey goosey people. Um, <laughs> so the product team is every engineer at the companies on the product team, every designer, um, product designers on the product team. So there's seven, eight engineers, not including myself. There's three designers and then there's two product managers. Um, so all of us work together. Um, there's sometimes groups of three. So you have a, a PM, a designer, and an engineer working on a particular problem. That problem is very much aligned with a business goal. So at the very top of Mike, we have OKRs, objectives and key results, and those bubble down into each team. So one of ours might be grow to this number in traffic and do it across multiple distribution channels. And we have to sit down with the editorial team who has um, analytics members on their team and figure out, okay, how and why and when and where do we start doing these kinds of initiatives? Here's what we have in terms of our resources. Here's how we can solve these problems. We can build products. We can gather information. Let's sit together and prioritize this, these set of deliverables that we think are going to work. And then we go at it for a quarter as fast and as hard and as high quality as we can. Um, I am only hiring for the vast majority of the engineering hires, very product-minded engineers. I have engineers who are telling me that we need to fix this in the process and we need to be more involved in, in design discussions and we need to be doing more prototyping and we do it. And it's a very nice problem to have, to have engineers who care so deeply about being uh, uh, affecting the product on a day-to-day basis. And um, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I was able to fa- find these people. That being said, we do have people that are focusing only on data and they're only working with a product manager to, to solve those problems and maybe a, a, an architect of some sort um, to do that. And that's a little bit different of an issue, but it's still heavily integrated into some kind of product that we have, whether it's content or a product product, you know, a design product. So that, that kind of shows the structure of the engineering and the product and the design teams. And we like to not feel like a service 
organization to Mike, but more like a real product team that's going to have our endeavors that are going to address all the business goals. So with editorial, a lot of the, uh, there's a lot of media companies out there that um, the product teams are servicing editorial. And what I've seen happen is you are now building lots of tools and lots of nice features that are going to be great for workflow and make nice flashy um, editorial content driven products. But you're now going to, not address the sales needs or you're not going to address the analytics needs as much as you can, especially because I'm only a 15 person team. Um, so we have to be very focused on which goals we're hitting, especially at this size. So delivering ads, pretty big goal, making sure that we have the right analytics infrastructure, exceptionally big goal, making sure that our article editor doesn't have bugs, pretty good, making sure that we have all the bells and whistles that you possibly could have in our CMS. At some point, I would love from a from a personal interest perspective to address that. But everyone on the team knows that we have to go after these high impact goals, really. I mean, for lack of a better phrase and buzz term, high impact is how we all think. And we're constantly reprioritizing. Certainly. And so in terms of the OKRs, um, I, I get the sense that um, maybe, you know, there is there is a notion that um, OKR, like uh, the objectives and key results, this metrics-driven um, organization style, you know, what gets measured gets managed, this type of style where you're, where numbers are important, goals are important, metrics are important. I think that there is perhaps a misunderstanding uh, in some people's minds that this is anathema to a free-flowing, creative, productive process uh, and that it can um, maybe uh, strangle creativity because, you know, you're just thinking from this numerical cold perspective, did we serve enough ads? Did we, uh, did we get enough page views? <laughs> so explain why that is not a uh, – like why that is a false choice, why that Definitely. is a false dichotomy. So a good goal is we have build distributed reach to a certain number, right? That's one of the goals that we have to accomplish. And um, for us, that breaks down into a number of possible products, but we don't know what they are on day one. We sit down and we decide, okay, what do we know from last quarter? What can we build this quarter? What kind of initiatives can we have? So there might be some very basic things like, okay, our Facebook conversion rate was, let's just say 1%, we need it to be 2%. That's where you run into the issue of a lack of creativity. But we're also saying, well, there's this whole world of messaging out there. There's this whole world of push notifications. There's a need for quality in integrated into editorial newsroom that we see existing. Um, mobile traffic from Twitter is becoming bigger, but we haven't figured out how to solve that from a, a, a visual perspective yet. How do we do that? So that's where the creativity comes in. Um, in my mind, and the product managers and myself and the editorial team and our editorial stakeholders have to sit down and figure out, well, how do we grow distribution outside of what we normally have done? And what does that product essentially mean to us and to our users? And in that world, you can still fall into very quantitative ways of thinking. And I, I think that's okay. And I think it's okay to challenging yourself with the concept that having a bigger, more, more abstract goal of let's have a brand new take on how we do Twitter conversion and we want to create a new product for that, iterating towards that is more, 
is, is, is a safer route, but a more challenging route. And I think that if you look at the great product companies that have existed, like the Apples and the Facebooks and the, the Googles, obviously they're, they're, they're huge companies. They have found that way to take a big idea, but not just do it, right? Not just say, hey, we're going to build this because it seems like a great idea. At our size, that's a big risk. It really is. And we've made a workflow that lets us still get to something big, like our article editor or some of the apps that we're going to be releasing that I can't talk about. And essentially, I'm sorry I say that, but essentially we've, we've found a way to use iteration to our advantage and not handcuff our minds. I mean, it's a constant consideration. It's a great question. It's a great challenge. Um, and we like to be data-driven. That's inevitably, we like removing as much subjectivity as we can. Um, and I believe in my core from a creative perspective that nothing is, tr- not much is truly intrinsically unique and everything's a copy of a copy of a copy to a certain extent. And t- it's your take on all the perception that you have in this world and you have to come up with the next big iteration and what that might look like. So I believe in that. My team believes in that. It's worked for us fairly well. Um, and it, it does work with objectives and key results still. I yeah. do think that. Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, no, it's a great answer. And I'm going to look out the window real quick to see if the building next to me is burning down because I'm hearing this like alarm noise coming from it. <laughs> I think it's just construction. So um, speaking of things burning down, tell me about the biggest engineering challenges that you're facing at Mike today. I mean, I'm sure you guys have scalability uh, things going on. Tell me about what's tough. For sure. It's so what we've done and what we've been able to do is with our is big data essentially is, is something that, and I don't have a better word for it, data architecture, but we, we collect about 750 million data points a month. And that's good. It's not enough in my mind. There's more we want. I think we're going to get to billions and billions a month soon. Um, and doing that in a cost-effective way without paying vendors a buttload of money is a real challenge, right? And at a, a company of our size with, with the kind of perspective of we want to build great products – Going out and finding a way to architect that and do it in-house is, is, is a challenge. And luckily, luckily we've used great services like um, a Keen I.O. So if you've never heard of Keen I.O., I would look them up. They're excellent. They're great. Essentially, you can send them a bunch of events per month, um, and they'll store them at scale. And they're very cost effective and you build your own dashboards and you use your own JavaScript or whatever, whatever language you want to use to go and save this data on the client side and go and query it in any way you want. So, and you structure it any way you want. So if you have a little NoSQL experience, you can go ahead and, and structure it the way you want. So it's been really good because we've been using it for a while. So we've learned how to structure NoSQL. We've learned how to accomplish um, querying from billions of data points. Um, we have some best practices on how to store these. And essentially, what we're starting to do is figuring out how to transition to something that we do in-house. And what so, so are you saying you want yeah. an in-house solution to replace Keen.io? Not necessarily for everything because they're so good. They really are. But there's certain things that we do want to do in-house that are, are going to parallel what we're storing in Keen. Is Keen so, – sorry, sorry to interrupt. Is yeah, Keen please, like please. a – is it like some abstraction over Kafka? It's an abstraction – they use uh, Cassandra. Oh, Cassandra. From what okay. I understand. So it's like yeah, managed yeah. Cassandra. 
Yes, it's way more sophisticated, honestly, than just Cassandra. I mean, they're doing the funneling of events into Cassandra, and then I don't know what they're using for querying if they're if they're map reducing that to something different on the back end. I know they allow us to put everything into S3, so we can do our own work with that. So it's yes, it's some abstraction of um, existing big data infrastructure. But what a challenge is for us, and we've played around with this idea, um, is at scale, when there's 50,000 people concurrently on our site, how do you collect the 25 data points that we might have per user? That challenge is not easy, and it's expensive to solve, and it's, it's a very big amount of hires to do that. And there's always more data points. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so Keen has, has abstracted this, and it's, it's, it still lets us have our editorial engine, not editorial, engineering ingenuity around it, so we can still decide how we want to store the data, decide how we want to query it, figure out what dashboards we want to build, create our own components around those dashboards, and, and, and we still maintain that ownership, but we're not just building big data for the sake of owning every possible piece of our stack. It's, it's just not, it's, it didn't seem like the, one of those in-house decisions that we should make at least yet. Mm-hmm. So this is, um, it t- sounds like it has all the hallmarks of a uh, good abstraction that is worth paying for. Um, yes, what are some of the other the other companies that you're, if you don't mind me asking, like the other products that you are are paying for? Like, there's this really interesting build versus buy discussion yep. evolving in the software engineering community because so many companies are building really good infrastructure products, and it's like, which do you buy, <laughs> and yep, how do you no. wire them together? It's a really interesting question. So. Yeah, it's something that I think we we have very good discussions about here, and we've generally made good decisions. So Keen is obviously one. We used Optimizely for a while, um, and we moved off of it because it's very expensive, and it's more about people that don't know how to code doing A-B testing. And I in a week, literally, and I'm not one to, to fudge timelines, but in a week we built something that was just as useful as Optimizely. So if you have the time and you have an engineer that's free, I would go ahead and do that. Um, beyond that, we have, we're working with a company soon called Boomtrain. So Boomtrain is going to do a little bit of NLP for us. They're going to do sentiment analysis, analysis NLP. This is something I've personally looked into for the last two years. And I've just, I've always come to the conclusion that um, manual curation is probably going to win out, but this is one of the first companies that just seemed like they had something that was going to really benefit us. Okay, what? Hold on. What do you mean Please. by that? the that? I'm really curious about what your what your framing of the uh, the debate around manual curation is. Yes. So two years ago, there is this this I think uh, understanding that digital content was going to be big, maybe three years ago, four years ago, whatever it is, at some point digital content was going to be big and getting people to the second page view and the third page view was could be very challenging, right? And a lot of companies, I'm not going to call them out necessarily, but a lot of companies had attempts at doing this and are continuing to attempt to do it, but nothing seemed like it was, to me at least, very sophisticated to the point where having an editor who wrote the article or, or not wrote it, but edited the article say, you know what, these two pieces of content are going to be really good for us. Or to kind of give you more of an infrastructure understanding of how Mike works, 
Um, and a lot of these companies work is there's a, there's a distribution team. So there's this team that takes our content and knows how to package it for social networks. They're experts at it. I mean, they're exceptionally good at it. They're super creative. They know how to get the attention of users. So that's what their job is. And they're, they're using metrics to drive all of their decision-making. So taking those people and having them do related content or putting something in the second or third slot of an infinite article page, essentially, I was finding that an algorithm would be very hard to do that better so than this is what you mean by manual curation. Like yes. the, the people are, you have a human in the loop doing labeling of the metadata. We have a human deciding what the title should be of a Facebook post, what the image should be of a Facebook post, what time of day it should go up, what kind of angle we should have, wow. what language we should be using. Do, and do, we're these, yeah. do these people have concrete understandings of the algorithms or are these people like they have a feel for it and they're like they've got their gut instinct or it's some so, kind of heuristic so, – yeah, sorry. There's there's no algorithm that they're using. What? Oh, you mean of the Facebook algorithm? Maybe. Yeah, like they understand how Facebook ranks stuff. At, at, like at some abstract <laughs> heuristic level. Yes. So a little bit is like we we will bring in the data of how well these posts do. We have a tool. It's called Lexicon, and they can go in and they can look up any article that's ever been posted to Facebook and look at all the data associated with it, how many people saw it, how many people clicked it, how well the article did once they clicked it, did people share it more, and they can say, okay, um, and this is how this article produced this kind of outcome, and they have uh, templates in their mind and, and on paper where they're structuring certain tactics and they're, they're, they're looking holistically at how these tactics have performed over time, and they might reuse them. They might throw them out the window. They have to adapt them um, because not they're not going to work forever because other companies like a BuzzFeed are doing similar things, and we're all using different tactics and the same tactics. So it's a, it's a constant rat race in that sense. Um, and for, you know, for us, the challenge is keeping it high quality and not purely clickbait. Um, and so there's a lot of heuristic analysis in that sense. And no one knows the Facebook algorithm, which is why Facebook is uh, one of the most valuable companies in the world. So, you know, to say they know what that is, no. To say that they're trying to understand it, reverse engineer it in a very um, creative sense, yeah, sure, sure. That's super fascinating. Um, <laughs> t tell me more about what – if you had the dream data science team that you could have, like as many people as mm -hmm. you wanted, like whatever infrastructure you would want to build, what – to whatever degree that you feel you could manage it, what would you orchestrate? What would you want them doing? Yep. So I've thought about this a little bit. I don't know if I'm going to be too abstract. So please tell me if you want more specifics. <laughs> I, so if you were to go into Google Analytics, you can see these user flows that exist. Or if you were to use a mixed panel, you can segment people um, and see, okay, someone who comes in from... Uh, uh, a Twitter blog goes and shares and then that share goes to a person out there and they come in and they do these actions. So there's a lot of different pieces that exist. I want to be able to map a person X or person ID 45 and I want to know for the, the till the end of time, everything that they do on the site, where their mouse goes, how far they scroll down and up, heat mapping, where they share, 
who then shares as a result of them and what kind of impact they've had on the company forever. I mean, that's never going to happen. It's too big and it might not even be worth building, but that is the, that's the, the vision. And then obviously somewhere back from that vision is where I'd like to end up. What does that team look like? Well, luckily I think Amazon has amazing products that allow teams to do this in a very sophisticated way with not a ton of resources involved. So a Redshift, a Kinesis, a Lambda, um, spinning up Hadoop instances like that that are already imaged out. You know, the hardest part is going to be hiring the data scientists to make sure we're structuring that and, and understanding it the right way. But um, I love getting engineers in here that have done a little bit of that and are thirsty to do more and to bootstrap themselves and to say, okay, I get what Redshift is. I get what the problem is. And we've done this before with engineers that have some experience, but not a ton. And they can work with this software in such a sophisticated way. So anyways, to go back to your question, I want to get dirty and I want to have some really scrappy engineers come in and do it and, and, and figure out how to use these tools to a media company's advantage because not a lot of media companies are going after the red shifts of the world and making them work for them. Um, in an ideal sense, yes, I'd go after the PhD algorithmic data scientists that are going to say, hey, if you want to model... Um, a user experience for a media company, here's the 25 steps that you have to go through in order to ensure that your data integrity is, you know, within 10% of accuracy. That would be great. I would love that too. But I don't know if we need it yet. Really. Okay. Okay. All right. So we talked about the pie in the sky. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about the brass tacks, more realistic engineering scenarios. Uh, you know, some article on Mike goes viral the servers start getting hammered, um, you know, maybe a problem starts to develop. Give me an idea of how your DevOps teams work, what your monitoring tools look like. Like I've heard that DevOps at these news organizations is really challenging and really important because you because uptime is so important. And if you go down during the presidential election <laughs> and you lose trust, it's like you know, some some people might just be like, as Jeff Bezos says, uh, trust trust is hard won and easily lost. So, yep. um, give me an idea of what goes on maybe during a crisis. Okay, so there, the first the first week I was here at Mike, there's fifty thousand people on for the election. The site crashed, um, and it crashed hard. There was no caching involved whatever. Since then, there has not been a catastrophic incident like that at all. Now I'm, I'm, there's no, I have no desire to sound arrogant at all on this <laughs> podcast, but, but the, the, uh, I'm curious what the challenges you've heard are from a scaling perspective. The, since our content is static, there's very good paradigms out there for solving that problem whether it's using a varnish cache or having everything hosted on a CDN, that challenge should not be that difficult for super high concurrent traffic. So we don't run into that issue much. Oh. If, yeah, in terms of, no, in terms of having to worry about automatically scaling, we already have the infrastructure with all the caching in place to do that. Um, I mean, yes, we get a lot of concurrence in peak traffic times, but it, it's minimal on our DB because you're not even making it to our DB. It's minimal on our CPU because you're not even making it to our CPU. We're using in-memory caching at the right below the load balancer, and that's solving all our problems for the most part. 
if we introduced user profiles, then we have a different problem to solve. Let's talk about millennials. Uh, on Software Engineering Daily, we try to report not only on engineering, the focus is obviously engineering, but we also like to get a perspective on how the broader world perceives and understands engineering. From your work at Mike, give me an idea of how well millennials understand what software is, like how software works. Do millennials even care about software? To what degree do they care about it? Like, give me an idea of how millennials interpret software. Sure. The, the, I would say, and obviously I'm biased, I would say millennials deeply care about it in the sense where if something doesn't work as it should, it's, it's, it's forgotten immediately unless it has such a mass appeal like an Instagram or a Snapchat. If you build an app and there's bugs, unforgivable you're done done. yeah and it's it's i think that's great to be completely honest so do they care about the intrinsic software and how it's written no do they care deeply about a product and the user experience that go that the software gives to them absolutely we we address that at mike speed is everything to us so we have one of the fastest websites amongst all publications top 10 we are one of the first people to implement AMP and Facebook Instant. And we've done a huge amount of work on AMP open source um, so far. And that's we're, we're, we're always thinking about speed because that's one of the invisible features, right, of, of any product. And um, just to give you a quick example. So, yes, I think people deeply care about it. And I think there's an emotional uh, relationship that you build with the user. And millennials are... are Definitely part of that thought process. Um, lucky for us, a lot of our users are on very modern devices and modern phones and they're upgrading iOS within a month. And that makes the challenges from a software engineering perspective and backwards compatibility perspective much easier. And I, th- I think giving you that example kind of shows how much they care about software and having the newest set of features and, and the, the fastest phone and so forth. What is your perception of the generation after millennials, the generation, it was generation Y, I think people call it, the, the mm-hmm. post, post-millennials or generation Snapchat, whatever you want to call them. How do they perceive technology? It seems like these people, these kids, the kids these days, mm-hmm. they are one with their devices. It, it is... I think still to be discovered exactly what they're going to do. There's a very interesting trend that they're not on Facebook that often and the Snapchat is the way to go and messaging apps are the way to go. And I think that's right. I think they are for some reason desiring a little bit of the inverse of how we've operated as millennials, which is we were very social. This is how we interacted. As soon as we were in college, we had this Facebook thing that brought us all together in this very monumental way that we all kind of reminisce about almost to a certain extent. And then you have these kids who now, okay, the Facebook is the thing that the older people do. And, you know, I can, I can talk to my friends in in a more fun way, like Snapchat. I'm giving you a very unthoughtful perspective, I think, or a not very well thought out perspective. Um, I don't have a very, very great opinion of it yet, but it's the the biggest the biggest surprise I'm seeing is that they're just not on Facebook as much as we are, and that's so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And that, that that's really all I can say without making things up. Millennial engineers, um, there is this 
perspective, uh, I think that millennials, uh, you know, they'll work a job for three months, then they'll just go off to, to bike around <laughs> Europe with a satchel. Um, you know, you interview a lot of engineers. How do millennial engineers differ from the rest of the cadre? So are you saying that millennial engineers like to bounce around? Uh, that- I'm saying they have a reputation for that, at least among the old folk uh, who I have yeah, who yeah, I yeah. have heard talk about hiring and their disdain for hiring millennials. Yeah, it's – and I, I think this is right to a certain extent, what I'm about to say, but there's the, – forget – I'll answer the engineers thing in a sec if that's okay. But millennials <laughs> in general are very thirsty for meritocracy and merit-based ways of progressing their career – and I think that the, the, the more lawyers of the world that are not happy with the, the normal partner track and the more consultants out there that aren't happy with that kind of track, you're going to see people bouncing around and, and, and working on their career in a more sophisticated and forward-thinking way. How does that translate into engineering? Given it's a commodity that is very competitive and sought after, yes, there's a higher propensity for that to happen uh, for sure. Um, that being said... And I say this all the time, even to people I'm hiring and the people on my team, I don't accept that. I think it is a failure of a cultural and professional development perspective. I, w- I think making sure that engineers are held to a standard of, of being challenged is, is something that everybody wants to do and tries to do. And it's an art form and it takes a lot of communication and it takes a certain kind of engineer that understands that moving up to a management position might not be what they want, which you see all the time is they get that opportunity to manage and people want to now code and manage. And in order to manage successfully, you can't code as much. So you have to figure out how to come to that kind of uh, balance and organizations are creating positions that do that balance really well. And it's just finding the right time and the right person to fill that, not forcing it. And for me personally, with engineers, um, it's an ongoing discussion. It's ensuring that they're happy with the work that they're doing, that they're challenged, and that there's a balance and that they understand that, you know, every now and then you're going to get this piece of work that's necessary. It might not be the most entertaining, but I guarantee you that the next three things you're going to do are going to be better than that. And here, here's what they're going to be. And it's not an empty promise because we have a plan. And it takes a lot of my time and a lot of my energy, but it's the most rewarding part in my opinion, is keeping engineers around is a challenge that I really like. And uh, it is one that I think every company has, honestly. So as a, as a media organization or as a technologically informed media organization, how is Mike scaling engineering relative to scaling the media team? Oh, good question. The, uh, the, the editorial team is around 50, 60 people. My team's around 14, 15. Um, it's what, what I, I'm going to give you my, my current situation. I have put a lot of energy with my director of product management into making sure that every hire we have is a very linear, linear incremental improvement for everything. So you add an engineer, you can build that's the, 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 the equivalence of how many products another engineer can build in the same amount of time, right? So are we scaling in the proportionate sense of the editorial team? No, not at all. Um, are we moving very fast? Have we gone from seven people to 14 people in six months? Yeah. So there's, it's, it's, 
a, we don't need as many people as there are editorially, um, but we are scaling in my mind in a similar fashion. And that's a good and healthy sign, I think. I don't know how good of an answer that was, but it's it's my answer. No, it's that's a, that sounds like a, a great place to wrap up. I mean, yeah, uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's uncharted territory, right? Like you know, this this a new type of organization. Yeah, I you know we're super efficient and everything. Like that's all that's all I really harp on all the time is efficiency, down to knowing keyboard shortcuts, and um, <laughs> essentially. I don't want to have to hire too many engineers that I don't have products for them to work on and, and can't keep them happy. So we'll see where we end up. Um, I am looking for six to eight more engineers. That is for sure. So, uh, you know, we'll got see it. What so, happens. well, if you're listening to this and you're <laughs> in New York or do you hire remote engineers? We have two engineers in Sweden. Um, we're building a team out there of multiple people. And then we have an engineer in Ukraine and then we are hiring in New York. All right, so if you're at Spotify and you're unhappy... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> hop on over to Mike. Speaking of which, did I you love see Spotify. SoundCloud? Like SoundCloud is like at risk of going under? I did see that. I was at SoundCloud last week in Germany. Um, that is heartbreaking. It, it is, but they're, they're, they're doing a lot of really smart product work. So it's going to be curious to see where they end up. I mean... It was amazing how they explained it to me. They have the largest database of of music in the world. I mean, that's an incredible feat. Um, hopefully, yep, the licensing I, doesn't. I, yeah. I posted my own music there. They're all throughout college. I I am a huge fan of SoundCloud. I was just like shocked oh, yeah. to see this morning. Like, oh my god, SoundCloud might die. It's it's it brings me back to the Groove Shark. You know, world, and it's <laughs> huge fan of Groove Shark. Something fell a little off about it, though. SoundCloud, I think they can make it. All these licensing deals are so difficult, though. So yeah, you know, I, it's in. I, I really, it would be a, such a shame. I mean, we have we have engineers on this team that are like music producers. It's amazing, and they. It's just it'd be so sad if they can couldn't do that. So absolutely yeah. okay. Well, Anthony, I'll let you get back to your work. Uh, Thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. This has been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for having me.